0: Over the past number of years, most of us have become accustomed here in North America to a political climate that's marked by severe division and animosity. That reality, I think, has become even more apparent in recent days with the presidential race in the United States, the election of Donald Trump, to the most powerful office in that country, perhaps the most powerful office in the entire world. And if you've been following the news at all recently, you'll certainly be aware that the election of Trump was quickly followed by unprecedented anger and protest and unrest among some Americans and extreme satisfaction and relief among others. In Canada, the United States, Europe, today's political scene is fractured and divided by a bitter and partisan spirit. Now as we open up God's Word this morning and continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see what happens when a partisan spirit like that enters the church and begins to divide brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd ask you to t- open it up and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. So we move beyond Paul's introductory comments today and dig into the main body of the letter written to a struggling group of Christians in first century Greece. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we begin reading this morning, verse 10. Appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I Thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. The opening nine verses of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul sets the tone of the letter by reminding these Christian believers in Corinth about their new and their true identity in Jesus Christ by giving thanks and praise for all the wonderful things that God had done in them And by them, through his grace, pouring out his gifts upon this church, so that they were lacking in nothing, so that they were well equipped for their mission and their ministry. But now the time has come for Pastor Paul to begin addressing the issues the church was struggling with. And the first one of those issues has to do with internal divisions and a partisan spirit that had taken root in the assembly main theme of our text this morning is Christian unity. As we work our way through these inspired verses today, we are going to see this week God's desire for true unity in his church, and next week the dysfunction that results when we fail to properly maintain the unity that God has created by his Holy Spirit. So we're going to be covering these verses over the course of two Sundays, focusing this morning on the true nature of Christian unity, and then shifting gears next week to examine the disunity that plagued the church in Corinth, and the disunity that can very easily gain a foothold in our churches today. Well, Let's begin then in verse 10 with God's desire for unity in the church as expressed by his servant, the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You may wonder here at first glance what motivated Paul to begin the main body of his letter with this heartfelt appeal for Christian unity, but it doesn't take long for the reader to figure it out, because in the very next verse we're told about a woman named Chloe, who had brought a discouraging report to Paul about the status of the church and had told Paul about all the bickering and the disunity that was happening among believers in that city. Though we can't be totally certain about this, Chloe was likely a businesswoman from Ephesus who made regular trips to the city of Corinth and had many contacts and friends within that church. And Paul received from Chloe and her representatives a troubling report about disunity and a party spirit that was threatening to pull the Corinthian church apart. But before Paul delves into the specific causes of their dysfunction and their disunity in verses 11 to 17, he first reminds these believers about God's ultimate desire, God's ultimate design for his church and the way in which we Christians are called to relate to one another as members of his body. Notice in verse 10 the way that Paul begins his appeal for unity, first of all calling them brothers, and then appealing to them in the name of the Lord Jesus, signaling to them that all of his instruction on unity is to be received with the authority of Christ as though Christ himself were giving it. We spoke a couple weeks ago about the apostolic authority of Paul. He is now exercising that authority as he speaks to the Corinthians in Jesus' name. But even though Paul is an apostle who writes with the authority of Christ, he is also their brother in Christ. He's a fellow Christian. And that's how he chooses to address them. You know, in our Christian circles, we often casually throw around those words brother and sister without really considering what they mean, what they imply about our conduct towards one another and our relationship with one another in the church. To call someone your brother or your sister is to recognize and affirm the person as a member of your family. And as Christians, we understand, or at least we ought to understand, that the church is a family with God as our father and with Christ as our elder brother. God's word teaches us very clearly all Christians are sons of God adopted into his family or what we sometimes call the universal church. One time we were all, without exception, spiritual orphans. We were enemies of the Father in heaven. But in His grace and mercy, God stooped down to us. He chose to adopt us into His family by grace alone, through faith in His beloved Son. And once He brings us into that worldwide family, composed of men and women from every tongue and tribe and people group, He then directs us to a local gathering of His people, which we refer to as the local church. A local church such as Rosedale Baptist, where we can experience family life, where we experience community life with brothers and sisters in Christ. A place where we can prepare for that future day when the whole family of God will be gathered together in the consummated kingdom under the lordship and the authority of Christ Jesus the King. When Paul refers to these Christians as brothers in verse 10, he is not just using a familiar throwaway term. He is reminding them that they are the part of the same spiritual family. And when he appeals to them by the name of the Lord Jesus, he's reminding them that all Christians belong to the same Lord, the same Savior, and are to be in full submission to him. And so here in verse 10, the Apostle Paul is already laying the groundwork for a biblical understanding of Christian unity, the reality and the truth. We are brothers. We are joint heirs with our elder brother, Jesus Christ. We are members of the same family under the Lordship of Christ. You'll also notice from verse 9, Paul anticipates the discussion on unity by telling them in the introduction, they have been called into fellowship or into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. This was true of the Corinthians way back in the first century. It is true of us today in the 21st century. We have been effectually, savingly called into fellowship with Christ. And therefore, we have been called into fellowship with all of his chosen people who are united to him. The sad reality, friends, is that we don't always live in the light of that glorious truth. We are, as I said a few weeks ago, men and women who are in the process of becoming what we already are. Men and women who are still learning to live in the light of our new and our true identity in Jesus Christ. And very often we do it imperfectly. Well, Paul begins his appeal for unity by reminding the Corinthians they are brothers and sisters. They are members of the same spiritual family under the authority of the same Lord and Savior. But from this starting point, the Apostle goes on in verse 10 to give some very specific instruction to the church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Just in case we're tempted to miss the point of what he's saying in this verse, Paul states his his instruction three times in three slightly different ways. First of all, he tells him positively, they are all to agree with one another, more literally in the Greek, that they are all to say the same thing. Then Paul goes on in the same verse to state the command negatively, telling the believers there are to be no divisions among you. By the way, the Greek word that's translated division in our English Bibles is schismata. It's the word from which we get the English equivalent, schism. World that word that originally carried the imagery of tearing a piece of cloth, of ripping a hole in a piece of clothing. You're one piece of cloth, Paul is saying. There are to be no schisms, there are to be no tears in the cloth. Otherwise, the garment of the church will be ruined and will not be good for anything. And so we see that the Apostle Paul states the point positively. He restates the point negatively. And if we still haven't got the message, he repeats himself a third time for emphasis, telling the Christians they are to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now clearly, Paul's appeal here in verse 10 is for unity in the church. It's an appeal for unity in the Christian family. A unity of mind, a unity of judgment, a group of believers assembled at the local level who are saying the same thing in perfect unison and harmony. It's not unlike a beautiful choir that is singing off the same sheet of music and making beautiful music in cooperation with one another. In short, that's the main appeal Paul gives in these verses. An appeal for Christian unity stated three times in three slightly different ways. So far, so good. But before we go any further in our discussion of Christian unity, I think it's important for us to pause at this point and to ask a few clarifying questions about what kind of unity the Apostle has in view here and what the nature of this unity is intended to be. We need to stop at this point in the text and seek clarification, because Paul's teaching on unity is often misunderstood, it is often misapplied by well-meaning Christians who do not fully understand what he's talking about. Christians who rightly value unity in the church, but who may not be familiar with what Paul says about this subject in many other parts of his inspired writings. The truth is, brothers and sisters, Paul's teaching on Christian unity in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, in many other New Testament texts has been extrapolated and interpreted, applied in directions that the inspired apostle could have scarcely imagined and ways that he would have forthrightly condemned. And there is a temptation, I think, to take a passage like this one where Paul makes a broad statement on Christian unity and to isolate that statement from its historic context to ignore other parts of God's Word where this same theme of unity is dealt with from slightly different angles. Friends, whenever we open God's Word and we study God's Word, it is imperative that we allow the Scripture to be its own interpreter. Or in other words, to allow one part of the Scripture to interpret another part the basic foundational rule of Bible study. All of us should take that principle to heart and strive to live by it. And in order to understand what Paul is telling us about Christian unity, I want to draw our attention to a few other passages from Paul's letter that will help us discern the boundaries and the limits on unity, lest in our enthusiasm to do what is right in God's eyes, we begin to run off in a direction that both Paul and the Lord Jesus would have utterly condemned. And so as we strive to understand what Paul is telling us here in verse 10 on the subject of unity, let me point out a few misconceptions. Let me point out a few things that Paul is definitely not saying to us. The first thing that Paul is not telling us about unity here in the text is that we Christians are to share the same opinions about absolutely everything hope that's intuitively obvious to you, but just in case it's not, I would draw your attention to two other passages in Paul's inspired writings, one in 1 Corinthians 8 and a second one in Romans 14. In both of these passages, 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, Paul makes it clear that Christians in the church are permitted to maintain differing opinion on a variety of matters relating to things such as food and drink and cultural preference. Perhaps the greatest single challenge in the early church and to unity in the early church was the fact that God was bringing together in one new body Jews and Gentiles, two different groups of people who held long-standing prejudices towards one another, who had very different ways of doing things. There was a tremendous clash of culture in the early church. We learn a lot about it in Paul's epistles and also in the book of Acts. You see, in the first century setting, there were some Gentile Christians in the churches who believed it was okay to eat meat that was purchased in the marketplace. Meat that had been offered by the pagans to idols in their temples. And in fact, the marketplace was the best place to get a good piece of steak. But In the same church, there were other Christians from a Jewish background who thought that this would be wrong, who didn't feel that they could do so in faith with a clear conscience. So in Romans 14, Paul addresses the divisive issue of food, and he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And so, friend, when Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 1 that all Christians are to say the same thing, to be of the same mind and the same judgment, it should be clear he is not talking about matters of personal opinion and cultural preference such as what you eat and drink. On issues like this where the Scripture gives us no specific instruction, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind before the Lord. Each person has liberty to follow his or her own conscience. There is no requirement laid out in scripture for us to agree 100% when it comes to opinions and preferences on a wide variety of issues. And if you're looking for a religion or a spiritual community that demands complete uniformity among the membership and allows for no difference of opinion, I would suggest that you leave a church like Rosedale as quickly as you possibly can and look for fellowship in one of the authoritarian cults. Find a cult where the leader will tell you what you can eat and what you can drink and where you can go and how long your hair needs to be and how much makeup you can wear and what style of clothing you can wear and what color the walls and the carpet need to be. If you want uniformity at the level of opinion and preference, the best place you can find it is in a cult. Because God does not require His children... To think exactly the same on matters where the word is silent. And on matters where the word is silent, there is room in the church for Christians to disagree. To act according to biblically informed conscience, so long as we are walking in love towards one another, not intentionally pressing those, pressuring those who think differently than we do to violate their God-given conscience and to sin. There is liberty for the Christian on matters of personal opinion and preference. And when Scripture is silent, that liberty is governed by our love for one another, our desire to spur one another on in love and holiness and good deeds. Paul is not saying here in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christians need to be of one mind on every single matter of personal opinion and and preference, but there's a few other misconceptions we need to be aware of. The second thing that Paul is not teaching in verse 10 is that Christians should set aside doctrinal truth for the sake of a visible display of unity and solidarity. Some of you here today may be aware, during the 20th century, there was a massive push on the part of certain Christian leaders and denominations to overcome the historic divisions in the church and to create a united Christian front that would be visible to the non-believing world as a part of our gospel witness. It was called the ecumenical movement. And the movement spawned an organization called the World Council of Churches, an organization that still exists today and includes many different Christian traditions and denominations from all across the spectrum. Now, on the surface of things, the goal of the ecumenical movement, the World Council of Churches, with their emphasis on Christian unity, sounds good, it sounds right, it sounds biblical. On the, first, on the surface level, the emphasis seems to correspond very well with what Jesus tells us in John 17, that we would be perfectly one, even as he and the Father were perfectly one. When you probe a little bit deeper into the movement, this modern push for visible unity in the church, you will quickly discover this united front came at a tremendous price. Or included in the World Council of Churches are many professing Christians and denominations that openly deny the cardinal doctrines and teachings of our faith. There are those, for example, who deny the deity of Christ. Those who believe that he was not born of the Virgin Mary. Those who believe that he did not rise from the dead as a historical fact. Those who believe he will not return to this earth in bodily form. Those who believe he did not die on the cross to make a substitutionary atonement for sin. Those who believe that the Bible is not the authoritative, inspired, infallible Word of God. And so the price tag of creating the World Council of Churches through ecumenical dialogue was to empty the faith of its doctrinal and theological content to deny the authority of the Scripture to allow anyone and everyone to participate just as long as they self-identify as a Christian push for visible unity that sees doctrine as harmful and counterproductive because it tends to divide christians from one another and thereby it allegedly ruins our witness to the world and so rather than emphasizing biblical doctrine biblical authority we should instead lay aside everything that divides us and focus instead on what we have in common which in the final analysis is precious little Because as an evangelical Christian who affirms the Bible as the authoritative, inerrant Word of God, I have very little in common with a professing Christian who would evacuate the faith of its essential content. Those who would deny that my Lord was God's Son, or that He died on the cross for sins, or that He's coming again to judge the living and the dead, or that those who refuse to repent and believe in Him will spend eternity in hell. As a Christian, it is not my duty, nor is it my desire to seek unity with such people. Actually, according to God's word, it is my duty to separate myself from them. It is my desire to evangelize them and to lead them to saving faith in Christ. Because I recognize nobody who denies those fundamental truths and doctrines of the word of God is a Christian, no matter what they may say, no matter what they may claim to be. They may call themselves a Christian. They may call themselves a follower of Jesus. In reality, those who deny the cardinal doctrines of the faith are false teachers. They are counterfeit believers who need to repent of their sin and bow the knee to Christ and confess Him as Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, when it comes to this brand of so-called Christian unity, the unity we find in the ecumenical movement and the World Council of Churches, the Apostle Paul could not be more clear. Romans sixteen seventeen, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, Paul speaks with even greater force and conviction. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be anathema. That word, by the way, means eternally damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, Paul says, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be eternally damned. In Acts 20, 29, Paul warned the elders of the church in Ephesus to carefully guard the flock of God under their care because after my departure, Paul said, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, friends, the problem with the ecumenical approach to Christian unity is that it's not Christian. Many people today like to talk about Christian unity as though it's something we create ourselves by crossing over boundaries and praying together and serving together in humanitarian projects. In reality, it is not you nor I who creates unity. We cannot create it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out way back in the 1960s, unity is not something that you and I are called to create as Christ followers. It is something that God creates through the Holy Spirit. It is something that we are called to maintain. An excellent little book written on this subject. It's called The Basis of Christian Unity. Dr. Lloyd-Jones states, "...unity is not something which exists or of which you can speak in and of itself. It is always the consequence of our belief and acceptance of this great and glorious doctrine of God who has provided in His Son the way of salvation and who mediates it to us through the operation of the Holy Spirit." That is the basis and the nature of Christian unity. It must never be thought of except in terms of this great background, this essential doctrine. It's a very important point to understand. And I hope you never forget it. It is God who creates the unity in His church through the regenerating work of the Spirit. And it is our job to maintain the unity that God has created. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul tells us in Ephesians to, ma- to maintain Christian unity, not to try and create unity artificially. And if our unity is not based on a common profession of faith in Christ, if it's not based on a common doctrinal foundation rooted in the authoritative word of God and the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is no basis for unity at all. There's a basis for evangelism, but there's not a basis for unity with false teachers or apostate churches that have denied the faith and departed from the truth. Christian unity does not require us to think the same way on every opinion and preference. It does not require us to associate in fellowship with those who have denied the essential doctrines of the faith. And there is a third thing it does not require. The third thing that Paul is not teaching about unity in these verses is that we should avoid confrontation at all costs, that we should never separate from another Christian brother or sister because of a doctrinal difference. And we know that this is true because Paul himself was once involved in such a confrontation. You can read about the incident in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11-14, to where Paul describes what happened and what led up to this conflict with his colleague Peter. The text says when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that the conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There are times in his ministry when Paul felt it was necessary to confront another Christian about conduct and teaching that was not in step with the gospel. And there will be times when you and I need to do the same thing. Disagreeing about personal opinions is one thing, but when the gospel itself is on the line, we dare not remain silent. We dare not sweep the disagreement under the rug. That's why Paul felt it was necessary to talk to Peter on this issue. That's why he actually went and did it. Peter's hypocritical behavior about eating food was sending a false message about God's grace. He was placing an unnecessary barrier in front of the Gentiles who needed to know Christ. There are times, brothers and sisters, when we need to confront one another. There are times when we may need, even need to interrupt our fellowship with a person who has wandered away from the truth, who has begun to teach and to advocate what is false and destructive and unbiblical. It's one reason why God has appointed pastors and elders to govern His church, to guard the church's doctrine and conduct, to protect the flock from wolves, to correct the sheep who begin to wander off the right path into error and sin. But before we ever take the step of confronting another Christian as Paul did to Peter, we need to make absolutely certain that we are not reacting prematurely, that we truly understand the biblical issues involved, and that we are committed to following through with the steps of conflict resolution outlined by Jesus in Matthew 18. By the way, the steps of biblical conflict resolution is to begin by personally confronting the person face-to-face and if the conflict is not resolved at that issue, the second at that level, the second step is to confront them again with one or two witnesses and if the issue is still unresolved at that point, that is the time when you bring it to the church leadership and they are disciplined appropriately by the congregation. Gossiping about another person in the church Spreading information behind someone's back, attempting to undermine a spiritual leader through backhanded channels and gossip is a very serious matter. In fact, Proverbs 6 calls it an abomination to sow division and dissension among brothers. As Christians, we either confront another brother or sister in the biblical manner, or we do not confront them at all. And in situations of false teaching where we believe that confrontation is necessary, we must make absolutely certain that the issue we are confronting and denouncing is a threat to the gospel and not simply another Christian perspective we aren't familiar with or a perspective that we don't personally agree with or a perspective that we don't understand. On top of that, we must also assure in these situations we are confronting that person in the right way with the right attitude and the right motive. Otherwise, we may find in the end that we acted sinfully, that we created disunity and dissension in the church without cause and without biblical warrant. Keep in mind, brothers and sisters, just as Paul has harsh words for false teachers who promote heresy in the church, he has equally harsh words for those who unnecessarily stir up division and dissension within the church. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. There is a time to confront another Christian. There is a time when we even need to break fellowship with another Christian or church leader, but we must make certain before taking that course of action that we have a valid biblical reason for doing so and that our motives are right in doing so before God. The fourth and final thing that Paul is not saying about church unity here in 1 Corinthians 1 is that we should avoid subjects simply because they're difficult to understand or simply because they tend to be controversial. It's a sad reality today, many pastors, many church leaders avoid teaching and preaching on certain parts of God's word simply because they are afraid of how the congregation will respond to their teaching. And so there are a number of timid pastors who avoid preaching on texts related to controversial matters such as the return of Christ, or the doctrine of sovereign election, or the exercise of spiritual gifts, or the role of Israel in God's plan, or the issue of gender roles in the home and in the church, and other similar issues. And there is a temptation for those of us in ministry to avoid speaking about these subjects out of fear. Because Mr. So-and-so might get upset and send us an unpleasant email on Monday morning. Or because Mrs. So-and-so might stir up trouble and leave the church. Or that she might quit giving her tithe in silent protest. There are a number of experienced pastors in the room today. And I would imagine that every pastor in this room knows from experience. There are certain topics. There are certain passages in the Bible that are like sticks of dynamite. They are topics that are bound to blow up in your face, to evoke an emotional response, to evoke a knee-jerk reaction, no matter what you say about them, and no matter how you say it. Someone in the church is going to get upset. Someone's going to think you've got an agenda to push. Somebody's going to think that you're out to get them. Somebody's going to think that you're a false teacher who's gone off the deep end. And so the easiest thing for a pastor to do is not to teach on those subjects and instead to foster the kind of situation that Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 to tickle the ears of the listeners to tell people exactly what they want to hear to tell people what they are used to hearing regardless of whether you think that is what they need to hear and regardless of whether you believe that's what the Bible teaches. It's one of the benefits by the way of teaching in an expository style like we do at Rosedale, going through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, because if you teach the Bible that way consistently over the long haul, you cannot help but teach on all the difficult, controversial subjects that we would probably rather avoid and not talk about. An expository style of preaching and teaching week after week through extended portions of the Bible provides accountability first of all to the preacher in fulfilling his duty to proclaim the whole counsel of God and it also greatly helps the congregation to understand that the preacher does not have an agenda or an axe to grind. We preach on subjects as they come up in the word of God. We don't skip over certain passages because they're difficult. We don't skip over certain subjects because they're controversial. We don't skip over things because they make us feel uncomfortable. And here at Rosedale, it will never be a surprise what you're going to hear about on Sunday morning. All you need to do is open up your Bible and read the next section of text and you will know what the sermon will be about. And all I have to say as a preacher, it is a comfort for me It's a comfort for me to know that the Apostle Paul did not shy away from difficult truths just because he knew that those truths would be controversial or that they would be rejected by some of his listeners. Probably the most controversial, the most difficult part of Paul's writing and teaching is found in Romans 9-11, to where Paul deals with the subjects of predestination back to back with the subject of Israel's future. I want to talk about sticks of theological dynamite. What I find very interesting in those chapters is the fact that Paul anticipated the negative reaction from the reader. He expected a negative response. He expected the criticism. Paul knew some people reading those chapters would not receive his views kindly. They would begin to cry foul. They would say if Paul's teaching on this subject is true, God is somehow unjust. God is somehow unfair. And that's the reason why Paul preemptively answers the critic in chapter 9 and says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? You know, if Paul's teaching in this subject was going to be easy for people to hear and accept, there would be no reason for him to say something like that. There would be no reason for him to deal with the anticipated objections that he knew would be coming his way. And so one thing that we can learn from Paul's example in ministry is that Paul did not think it was wise and prudent to avoid teaching certain doctrines because he thought that his teaching would be poorly received. You know, my philosophy of ministry, brothers and sisters, is this. If it's in the Word of God, it's fair game for the pulpit. It's fair game for the Bible study. And if it is in God's Word, if we are teaching systematically through God's Word, we will deal with those subjects eventually. We are going to eventually hear perspectives from the pastor and the Bible study leader that challenge us and that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But brothers and sisters in Christ, let me say to you this morning, we do not need to avoid difficult subjects in God's Word in order to preserve Christian unity in the church. And i become convinced One of the marks of maturity in the Christian life is the ability to listen to someone who disagrees with you and to thoughtfully consider an opinion and a perspective that may be different from your own. Sometimes the very best thing you can do when you hear something you disagree with is to take a deep breath and relax. and See if there's something you can learn from it. That's what James is talking about when he instructs the church how to respond to the preaching of God's word. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, friends, when I was in seminary, when I was in graduate school, I studied under a wide variety of professors who taught all kinds of things that I didn't agree with in a liberal setting at McGill, in a conservative setting at Trinity. And through that process, God helped me to listen and to learn and to think critically and biblically about theological issues. I learned that sometimes you've got to eat the meat and spit out the bones. I learned that there will never be a professor or a Bible teacher, a pastor who you completely agree with on every single matter. And that's probably a good thing. Because if you agree with every sentence that comes out of your pastor's mouth, there's a problem. The problem isn't with the pastor. The problem's with you. Because if you agree with everything your pastor says on every minute detail of theology and interpretation, you're probably not reading the Bible very carefully. You're probably not thinking critically about what's being said from the pulpit in the light of God's Word. We are not called by God to be uncritical thinkers for the sake of unity. We're called to be like the Berean Christians searching the Scriptures daily to see whether the things Paul was teaching them were really so. You know something, there are dozens of pastors and church leaders, theologians, I deeply respect and admire, but that doesn't mean for one moment that I agree with every word that comes out of their mouth. For example, I deeply respect and admire John MacArthur. I benefited tremendously from his ministry, but I don't agree with everything John MacArthur says on the spiritual gifts. I respect R. C. Sproul. I thank God for the impact he's had on my life and ministry. But I don't agree with one moment for R. C. Sproul with R. C. Sproul's view on infant baptism. I respect Tim Keller. I buy and read about every book he publishes. But I don't agree with Tim Keller's view on creation evolution. I respect J. Vernon McGee. I will be always be indebted to his through the Bible program, which helped to help to build my faith when I was in high school. You know what? I don't agree with J. Vernon McGee's dispensational theology. That's okay. It's okay for us to disagree on certain things. To tell you the truth, we best get used to it. Because as long as we are in this mortal body on this side of the kingdom, there will be disagreements. There will be differences of opinion. One day when God's kingdom is fully consummated, the church is gathered together in all its fullness and diversity. We will have a perfect theology. God will straighten us out in all of the areas where we fell short of the mark. And on that day, I'll get to tell you all, see, I told you so. (laughs) But until that day comes, and you all realize I was right, we need to be humble. We've got to be humble. And that means all of us, myself included. We must foster the ability to listen to those we disagree with. We must foster the ability to consider perspectives and interpretations that may be different from our own. Comparing, of course, those perspectives against the touchstone of God's holy inspired word. Perhaps even changing some of our views. Perhaps even modifying some of our views. You know, in the past 15 years since I've been a committed Christian, a serious student of the Bible, my theological views have shifted on some things. And I'm sure as I grow as a Christian, as I continue to study God's Word, my opinion might still change on one or two things. You know, we spent a great deal of time this morning investigating the boundaries of Paul's teaching on Christian unity. And I think that's a good thing. We've addressed some of the misconceptions about unity that tend to obscure and overshadow this part of God's word and what becomes evident when we interpret Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians 1.10 in the light of his entire collection of writings, he is not making a blanket unqualified statement about church unity. Paul is not telling us to seek unity by laying aside doctrine and he is not telling us that we need to seek uniformity on every opinion and preference. When Paul tells the church they are to be united in the same mind and judgment, he is speaking about the essential doctrines of the faith. He's not speaking about opinions. He's not speaking about secondary matters where there is room for discussion and disagreement between born-again Bible-believing Christians. He's telling the Corinthians, agree with one another on the essentials and quit fighting and dividing over personal opinions and loyalties. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to continue on in this text, and we're going to see that most of the division and schism in the Corinthian church had nothing to do with theology. It had everything to do with personalities. It had everything to do with personal loyalties that were taking the place of their supreme loyalty and allegiance to Christ. As we close our time in the Word this morning and apply some of these truths we've been speaking about today, let me encourage you, this week gives some careful thought and consideration to the distinctions we've made today between primary issues, secondary issues, and personal opinions. When Paul tells the Corinthians to be unified in mind and judgment, he is speaking about the essentials of the faith. He's talking about the top-tier central doctrines of the faith upon which there can be no compromise, no disagreement. All of us here today, need to know what those non-negotiable doctrines all are. We all need to be willing to stand together on those things without budging, without flinching, without apologizing. But below that top tier, below that layer of essential doctrines are a number of theological matters where there may be a diversity of understanding and opinion within the family of God. Sometimes our differences in these secondary areas will require us to seek fellowship in different churches or in different denominations for the sake of peace. I'll give you a real quick example of this. It would be very difficult for us to hold different views on infant baptism and still to remain in the same local church. Because if you come to me and ask me to baptize your infant child or your grandchild, my answer is going to be no. I'm not going to change my view on that because you disagree. And if that is still an issue for you and you're convinced on that issue from the Word of God, that's okay. But the solution for you might be to seek fellowship in a different church or a different denomination. Some secondary issues like baptism are are of such a practical nature that we may need to fellowship in different churches for the sake of peace and conscience. But that does not mean that we cannot recognize and love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and members of the same Christian family. You know, earlier this week, Leslie and I had dinner with Pastor Ben Cousineau and his wife Susan, pastor at St. Andrew's Presbyterian across town. When it comes to baptism, infant baptism, Pastor Ben and I have a disagreement. We do not agree. But in spite of our difference on that issue, we love one another. We accept one another as brothers in Christ. We're completely united in the gospel because I'm a Christian before I'm a Baptist. And he's a Christian before he's a Presbyterian. We're brothers. We're members of the same family. Sometimes secondary differences require us to worship in different churches for the sake of peace and conscience. But when it comes to these kind of things, the truth is, many times our differences can coexist within the same church and within the same denomination. And sometimes the truth is, and it's a painful truth, we separate from one another far too easily over issues and opinions and preferences that need not separate and divide us at all. Sometimes we interrupt our fellowship with one another far too easily, far too quickly, when the better way forward would be to agree to disagree and to love one another and to respect one another in spite of our differences, or to say it another way, as Paul said it in Ephesians, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, there's an old and often quoted Christian saying, I think it's still as good and true today as it always was in capturing the essence of Paul's teaching. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Charity.